What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome or welcome back to the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast. We hope you are tuning in for the first time, because if not, we're sorry. Again, we just needed a little break, but we're back. We have some very interesting cases lined up, and we're going to start with mine to get us going, because naturally, I'm next. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> oh, boy. Takes a sip of White Claw. Uh, I decided to go a bit out of country, honestly, for the next few cases. I... I'm just tired of America right now, and I just need a break. So I did not go very far. Canada, what is up? We are talking about y'all today. I am talking about maybe not a well-known serial killer, but one that definitely has, I think, one of the more unique methods of killing. So today I will be talking about Gilbert Paul Jordan, otherwise known as the Boozing Barber. Oh, yep. You did get a little hint of what I was talking about if you follow us on Instagram. So <laughs> go follow if you are not. But yes, this case involves heavy alcohol use, heavy drug use. It also does involve sexual assault. So he was actually not born Gilbert Paul Jordan. He was actually born Gilbert Paul Elsie in 1931 in December, and I will get to that name change here in a bit. But though he was said to grow up in, I guess, somewhat of a normal household, his parents did divorce, but there was nothing that was said to be traumatic that happened within his early childhood. He did pick up some very destructive habits. He did drop out of school in the eighth grade. I don't know if it was due to his drinking, but he did like to drink. And by the time that he was 16, he was a self-proclaimed alcoholic at this point. Wow. It was reported in one instance that he was drinking up to 50 ounces of vodka a day. Holy shit. As you can imagine, him drinking all of this alcohol just made him the loveliest person in the world. He would be sent to prison multiple times for things such as theft, drunk driving, and heroin possession because he also did like to dabble in drugs. And this was all done by the 1950s, so when he was like in his 20s. And it was actually said that prison is where he learned to become a barber. Okay. Hence his nickname, the Boozing Barber. He was just a... Like, I'm all for people picking up healthy skills in, while they're incarcerated, um, but not, like, if it contributes later on to more crime. Well, and just not if you're drunk while doing it. One... <laughs> I don't think that's legal. Give me a good shave, man. <laughs> Two, I would hate a haircut from him if he was drunk. I couldn't imagine. Well, imagine him shaving your, like, beard yeah. or your neck. Like Could kill you. Especially in the 50s, they're probably doing Sweeney it Sweeney Todd. <laughs> oh, my gosh, no. But some of the charges that Jordan acquires later on in life are honestly just truly insane what any justice system will let a person go with. It's very 
I think it's very funny how many times I had to remind myself like, oh, this isn't the United States, it's Canada, because it just very much, I don't know, mirrors it. So it's interesting to see how so many countries, I feel like, tend to have the same situations and the same problems that go on within their criminal justice systems. And I say this because on May 1st of 1961, police would find Gilbert Paul Jordan with a five-year-old First Nations girl. He had apparently taken her off of the reservation, and when police had found him, he was in a ditch. In some reports, he was sexually assaulting her. In other reports, it wasn't confirmed. So I'm not 100% sure what happened in that car, but it's heavily assumed that inappropriate things were happening. He was just 29 at the time and officials would let him go. I really couldn't find the official reasoning for this, but you're going to see that it is very much a common theme within this story that First Nations women are very much set off to the side or looked over when it comes to these criminal investigations. And this is very much how Jordan is able to get away with his crimes, at least in my opinion, for so long. But I mean, when you look at what I just said, continued with what I'm about to say, it's just so blatantly obvious. So Mm. that following year on Christmas Day, police would be called to Lionsgate Bridge to have to deal with a drunk and depressed Gilbert Jordan as he was attempting to throw himself off said Lionsgate Bridge. Unfortunately, his lawyer at the time, which I believe it was his mother when she passed, she had a rather large inheritance that she had passed down to Jordan and he was able to make some really smart investments with that money as well as um, for being a drunk barber. I don't know. I guess either he gave good haircuts or he got good employees to run the business because he was able to make some money off of the barbershop as well. So he was able, therefore, to pay for a really good lawyer, which also helped him in turn get away with everything. He's also a white man in Canada. So So they called this rich, fancy lawyer to the scene. He is able to talk Jordan down, unfortunately. And, you know, they just slap him with public intoxication And once he goes into court about like six months later, he's Nazi saluting in court and they throw him with like an an contempt of court charge. And so because of this Nazi salute and his overall attitude for his public intoxication incident, he is given six months for all of this. In 1963, he lures two women out to Coal Harbor under the guise that he's going to give them alcohol and they can go out and have a nice little drink. But when one of the women stepped out of the car in order to get some fresh air, Jordan suddenly slammed the car door with her friend still inside and drove off. He would drive out to North Vancouver. I don't really know how far that is. I just know it's a separate location, which is enough. Terrifying. Couldn't imagine what you were going through or thinking on that drive over there. And when he gets there, he attacks and rapes this woman before supposedly dumping her out of the car and then leaving with both of these women's purses still in his car. So when they both go to police and report this incident, police go find Jordan and his car, find the women's purses 
still inside the vehicle and say, oh, well, we can't slap him with rape charges or assault charges, but we could do theft for the purses. So he would serve two years consecutively for these crimes. But like I have said, that would not stop Jordan from continuing his rampage. One of the more interesting things that I did find was during a court order, one of the psychiatrists found out that he was suffering from antisocial personality disorder. And when I had looked up just some information over this, one of the interesting facts that I found about this was that men that are suffering with antisocial personality disorder are said to be three to five times more likely than women to misuse alcohol and drugs than those who are not suffering from this disorder. And overall, people with this disorder are often characterized as impulsive, irresponsible, or often acting out in criminal behavior. So he was definitely suffering from a lot of mental disorders, which not to ever explain why people do things. I think when it comes to this certain level, like we're never as somewhat normal. I don't want to call us normal because no one's normal, but just like as human beings on being able to feel empathy and being able to feel bad and good for one another, we're mm. never going to be able to understand the reasoning as to why someone like that is doing it. So Well, and also not to like, I mean, just to put it out there, like it's the 60s at this point and not as much about these disorders and mental health overall is as understood as it is today yeah and especially you know for men back in the day like you know it's more common for a woman to have those kind of issues yeah and i mean even to this day it's very much seen as taboo for men to feel any emotion other than anger i'd say so it's very much if you are feeling anything and wanting or feeling the need that you may need help, it's very hard, especially as a man, to express that need because you're seen as weak or not good enough. Right, and then accepting the help, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and then for men doctors themselves to diagnose, Mm -hmm. um, back in the day, not today, but for them themselves to diagnose those kind of issues in men, they were probably a little more reluctant than they were towards women. So um, not saying, I mean, I'm kind of going off the deep end here but it was easier for a woman to get diagnosed with uh mental health disorders and issues because they rub hysteria stereotype they scrub the floor the wrong way they go into the mental health hospital right i mean but even in the 60s when that you know were it's it was still very common and granted in the 60s it became a little more normalized but for men to try and claim any kind of um, incompetence as far as their mental health goes, it's definitely a way to get a reduced almost. sentence or oh, get off yeah. a charge. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, usually no, that's I the only way that. they'll claim and like admit they have any issues. Is yeah, back in the sixties at least. And it's done quite often. And, you know, I that is a great point. I do believe that that's the only time I've Sorry, ever seen a man Sorry, I went on like a, like a figure eight loop-de-loop thing with my whole, like, hysteria talk. But that's where I was getting to. <laughs> like, 
know, like yeah it's just like no one's crazy unless you want to get off a charge but i would say even particularly in canada because one of the um oh he is gonna hate me i forgot his name but the gentleman that was working so hard to bring the domestic abuse awareness in Canada for men, and the government literally ignored him, and he ended up committing suicide. Oh. Trigger warning, suicide. Yeah, and that one drug mystery in history. Wait, so I heard the story? Yes, you did. Fuck. Mystery <laughs> <laughs> in history. Uh, or no, it was you like were a case drug. <laughs> yeah. But it becomes tricky because as we find out he takes kind of this combination of deadly criminal behavior to a new level because he thinks up of a kind of new way of killing it had at least in the criminal justice system at the time never been done before because Gilbert Paul Jordan would become known as Canada's first known serial killer to use alcohol as a murder weapon. Oh, fuck. Excuse my language, people. I almost um, feel bad drinking this episode, but I had <gasps> the loosey-gooseys. I had to fucking get myself prepared. It's been a while <laughs> since we recorded. But yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. As this bottle of wine sits in front of me, let's fucking hear it. It's bad. And it just keeps getting worse. So the first known murder that would occur where Jordan can be tied is on January 17th of 1965, when 52-year-old switchboard operator Ivy Rose Oswald, I saw in a newspaper clipping that she possibly went by Doreen, but she would be found dead and naked in a lie hotel with Jordan in Vancouver. Uh, you will see a lot of these women. I don't know if Ivy lived in this area, but a lot of women Jordan will tend to pick up around the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is more known as their skid row. It's just not like the best area known for a lot of sex work or you know drug use or drug buying i don't know the term for it but yeah like you've never bought drugs i know like i don't but i don't know like the, it's been so long drug deals girl <laughs> drug deals thank, thank you you know gotta keep the feds off me <laughs> so, trying, I'm not trying to get red flagged. <laughs> so, um, so I think that this is another reason why it is so easy for investigators, for police, for everyone around to overlook these murders, to overlook everything that is happening because they see these women coming from a certain area or a lot of these women, as I will get into it, have drinking problems or have problems with alcohol or substances. And so they will use that as an excuse to not do their job and properly investigate. I'm sorry if that hurt, but when you start to read the similarities, like it would take a seven-year-old to go in and figure this out. Like, it's just right. stupid. Anyways, they find Jordan with Ivy Rose Oswald's dead body 
And when they test her body, they find that her blood alcohol level at the time of death was 0.51, which is six times more than the legal driving limit. For those who aren't familiar with the alcohol percentages and how they affect your body, for the normal person, it said that at 40 milligram percent, which is 0.04, this is where people start to get euphoric feelings, where they start to, you know, feel a little good, the lips feel a little loose. At 0.15, the vast majority are showing signs of impairment. They begin to stumble. They're slowing, they're slurring their words. They're getting the little Sarah Hayes over the (laughs) eyes effect. (laughs) And at uh, 0.25 is where you begin to pass out. You should not be drinking past this. Please do not try to get to this level at home or really like past 1.5. You're good. (laughs) Trust me. I've seen it in action. That's fine. And at 0.35 milligrams, we are starting to see really deadly effects within alcohol consumption. And then at 0.5 milligrams, it said that nearly everyone who reaches this will die. There are going to be some exceptions. Like I said, this is for the normal human. If you are consuming alcohol on a daily basis in heavy amounts, your tolerance will be affected. Your tolerance is going to be higher than that of the normal person. So keep that in mind a little bit, but it's just still like these alcohol contents that the the alcohol percentages, the BAC levels that these women get to is fucking insane. Mm. So when they find her, they test her blood alcohol. It is 0.51, which is hitting deadly levels. And so they see that as, you know, a a normal excuse, a valid reason as to say, oh, she drank too much alcohol, therefore she died. Though I will say this right now, though it, you know, sounds fairly easy and we do hear about it a lot, it is not that easy to drink yourself to death more times than not you are physically passing out before your body can consume that much alcohol right you're more likely to choke on your puke when you're drunk exactly and die than yeah and you're more likely to die of alcohol withdrawal than over to yeah yeah so like a lot of the deaths that do occur with that are exactly what Sarah said, are from people typically throwing up and then choking on their vomit. Um, It's really not from reaching this high of a level. So just keep that in mind for when I go down the line. So they knock this off as an incident. They let Jordan go. Though I will say in the hotel room, they caught Jordan with like a significant amount of Ivy's possessions. Like he was robbing her basically. Okay. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't think that they were able to charge him with theft, probably because he was in the same room. It was really weird. And it was very much like a he said, she said type of deal. Uh, she yeah. had no relatives. She, but the she was dead. <laughs> exactly. She so. had no relatives in Canada to fight for her. Jordan very much got to narrate the story. And uh, when the autopsy report showed that Ivy's scalp, nose, lips, and chin all had superficial bruising on it. The coroner, Glenn McDonald, was just like, eh, you know. Okay. You'll see a lot so of she their... she wasn't smothered? A lot of their excuses are, well, women in this area just tend to have bruises like that. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, I get it, but stupid. I don't get it. It's maybe I don't get it because I'm naive, but like I just with that and with all the other victims, it's just annoying. If she was a sex worker or even someone like experiencing homelessness in that kind of area you were speaking of, uh, just women are vulnerable to violence times a thousand whether it's agreed upon for money or not um and even just like fucking but then i just feel like if if they are into drugs if she's dead though and she has that then maybe we look at it as not being accidental like i don't know and obviously i get it it's because they think i'm not trying to like downplay it at all no, no, no no i know you're not It's the coroners that are downplaying it by just thinking, like, oh, these women aren't worthy of a rightful investigation. It's fucking sick. Sorry if they think differently, but it's just, like, obviously something was going on. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about this. So, And they're able to measure the stage of bruising. So, if it is fresh bruising, obviously, they need to, It happened at her time of death. Yeah. They... It... There's... It's a whole thing that's part of being... A quarter. Yeah, (laughs) like you going to school and learning this. You know all of this and you should uh, notate it. Don't say too much, Sarah. They'll try to mansplain it to us. True. Either way, his guilt is super apparent because whether police want to accept it or not, Jordan freaks out. Because like I said, Jordan isn't even his real last name. That's just what we know him as. Yeah. Yeah forgot about that yeah so his real name is gilbert paul elsie like i said in the beginning but just two months after ivy rose's death he switches his name to gilbert paul jordan this is very much under the guise that he like because like i said he had somewhat of a very normal family it was described so like he did not want his family tied to this when people tried to talk to the brother i uh, read that the brother's kind of standoffish. He doesn't really want to be tied to this. And it's just all very much like don't need it in the family affairs. And so Jordan changed his name, kept it hush hush. And so that is why I refer to him as Gilbert Paul Jordan for the rest of the tale. But now that Elsie is now Jordan does not mean that Elsie's habits are going to change just because his last name did. And so he picks right back on up. It, this is where it starts to get very confusing and I'm going to do my best, but this guy does a lot of crime and he gets away with a lot of it. And so it's kind of hard to keep track of what all he does because let me tell you, it is a lot. Oh. Through Murderpedia, I found in 1971 that in the Vancouver area, he was caught committing a indecent act in a public place was not able to get the details, but I was able to find that that charge was dismissed. Very common theme here. He takes a little break, or at least in the law's eye, to which he was not caught. But in 1973, which not so fun fact, was the year he actually got married to his first wife, Winona, he caught three separate charges. These included inviting local children back to his house under the guise that they were going to watch TV, only to have Jordan expose himself to them. Ah. And then attacking and sexually assaulting 
not one, but two women on separate instances that same year. Thankfully, one was able to escape while a passing car was going by and she unlocked the door and jumped out and then jumped into the passing car and got away. And then another woman got away when Jordan passed out. I believe like he was, she had helped him um, take the groceries up to his apartment after he had given her a lift home in the winter. He had offered her some liquor. He drank as well. He attacked and sexually assaulted her. And then when he passed out, she was able to sneak out of the house, thankfully, before anything else occurred. In 1974, in Prince George, it was said he was convicted of indecent assault and sentenced to two years less a day. And in between this entire time, it was said that he was violently beating Winona. The hospital staff actually got quite familiar with her and her situation and would even try to help her out by not allowing Jordan into the hospital. But Jordan would go as far as disguising himself as a doctor and sneaking into the hospital in an attempt to break her out. Thankfully, they would officially divorce. I believe in 1975, uh, she had actually tried to board a plane for California to officially get away with him and never have to see him again. He said, no, you're not. And he called a bomb threat on the (gasps) plane. Oh, my God. And so the plane never took off. And because of this, that got him off. Because since the plane never took off, he couldn't officially be charged with the crimes. His lawyer, like, found the little loophole and got him off. Because he was being charged with, like, hijacking and maybe something else. Like, I forget the official charge, but the lawyer was like, since the plane did not technically move or get off... It was just, like, I think the people boarded and maybe unboarded. I don't even know if they boarded, but he was just, like... Wait, so he was on the plane with her? No, he just made a phone call and was, like, there's a bomb on the plane. Oh, the charges for that. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. That doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe the laws are different back then. Probably different Canada, now. Yeah. But, um... The lawyer was, like, since... Wasting people's time like that nowadays is a crime. <laughs> has to be now i hope well i would think not because some people are forced to wait hours on that fucking tarmac in a non-moving plane well not because the airlines say so sarah because capitalism anyways Mm, it's capitalism capitalism not a crime even though it should be so instead of sending this man to jail like we should be the crown decided we're just gonna try and make him a dangerous offender instead we're just gonna try and let the public know hey this guy is not a guy that you want to be around but jordan's damn lawyer don't know what the fuck we're thinking with the whole lawyer client situation when it comes to cases like this intervenes and puts in an appeal which is accepted which means that he is not put on the dangerous offender list and so when jordan officially gets back on the streets in 1975 He does his lawyer justice by immediately kidnapping a 47-year-old from a mental institution after he posed as a doctor and lured her into his car and then rapes her. 
He ends up getting caught when passing officers notice his parked vehicle and essentially catch him with her. He gets charged with kidnapping and sexual intercourse with a feeble-minded person and for this is given 26 months for assault. And I feel like the lawyer should have had his license taken away or something. There's like, if you are representing someone and I don't know. I can see the, maybe the gray area where they trick you, but maybe not this instance, but maybe the next five instances or so that I'm about to say, like this guy knew what was up. This lawyer knew what was going on and he just represented him because he was getting a paycheck. Like he had yeah. no moral compass. It should not be that we're representing, like, I understand you're representing a client, but you're doing it for the justice system, not the client. If your client is guilty, like, fucking send him to jail. We shouldn't be, oh. Right, know. well, that's It's not going to happen, I know, but ugh. it's weird. There's a difference between the law and practicing the law, but also, like, thank you to the attorneys I've had. <laughs> The court appointed criminal defense attorneys. Thank you. Fuck. Okay. So fuck. JK. Scratch all of that. We need all. No contest, Kristen. You know what? Take. I take everything that I said. It's so hard. It's so hard. Because the justice system is so messed up. Well, I mean, it's oh, so different, you too, me, when you're you arrested me for 1.3 grams of marijuana versus, like, raping and or killing, like, several women. It's hard. Yes. Yeah. You you turned me with one sentence, though, so fucking quick. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry. It's just... I, it's, <laughs> We don't know nothing. We're just shitting around because it's just interesting points to make. And it's this lawyer. I don't like him. Because from 1980 to 1986, court proceedings would show, based on Jordan's own words, this is from his account, not anyone else's, that he sought over 200 women per year in order to have a binge drinking episode with and often these binge drinking episodes came with sexual gratification whether it was consensual or not uh you can probably think the latter that's a lot of days out of the year he's an alcoholic with no children no life well i mean even like if there were wasn't alcohol involved just like seeking out that many women 200 days of the, of the year prostitute of course oh, no, yeah i know sorry sex work takes well, yeah, up a I lot guess of that. people do that too but well because i would say it would be hard just to go to a bar but like he yeah he goes with sex workers so you i don't know the price of one but depending it would well it doesn't matter be. if you're gonna freaking kill them and that's what scares me because if he is stating claiming that he's talking or having instances with 200 200 women per year from 1980 to 1986 and next bullet point out of this they're able to connect seven instances 
that scares me because I'm like, how many are we missing? Because we've already kind right. of missed a lot in this investigation. I'm not going to lie. We're dropping the book a lot here. So what else are we dropping the book on? That's a yeah. lot of, and uh, I'm going to save it. I'm This case makes me mad. On very... I know. And I, I, I have a question, but I'll save it too, because it's about the investigation, but there's clearly no investigation yet. So no. Of the seven instances that police were able to connect them to connect Jordan to, they were all First Nations women and they were all found dead after spending a night out with Gilbert Paul Jordan. These women were 42 year old Mary Laurentia Johnson, who was found on November 30th, 1980. She would be found at the Allmeyer Hotel with a blood alcohol level of 0.34. An inquiry would later find that her death was caused by unnatural and accidental reasons. But Johnson's sister-in-law suspected that her sister-in-law had been murdered from the beginning. Lavana Gentry, Mary's sister-in-law, stated that just a week before her death, Johnson had actually called Gentry, saying that someone had wanted to kill her. <gasps> but police, unfortunately, never paid attention to this claim and never investigated this instance any further. The next victim would be Barbara Paul Allen, who was 27. She was found on September 11th of 1981 in the Glenard Hotel, she had a blood alcohol level of 0.41. Barbara had apparently been on a four-day bender with Jordan. I don't know if she was with him the entire four days or if he had picked her up towards the end bit, but it was very much concluded because there had been witnesses seeing her drink over this four-day period that she had just simply drank herself to death. The next woman to be connected to Jordan would be 25-year-old Mary Doris Johns. She would be found on July 30th of 1982, and she would be found at 2503 Kingsway. And this was actually Jordan's own barber shop. Oh. Her blood alcohol content at the time was 0.76. This was enough liquor to kill the average person twice over, it was stated. Ugh. She was found lying face down on a foam mattress with just a blanket covering her body. It was said that she had been seen drinking with friends the day before, and so it was assumed again by the coroner Campbell that she had simply ingested a large amount of alcohol without realizing that she took a lethal dose and passed in her sleep. A girl will puke before she drinks. He gets away with it yet again. When 40-year-old Patricia Thomas was found on December 14th of 1984, again at 2503 Kingsway, his own barber shop, her blood alcohol level would be 0.51. And I will say every for the barbershop instances, Jordan reported these deaths on his own after talking to his lawyer. Oh my god. I was gonna ask. I just didn't want to like 
interrupt or like I didn't know if you're gonna get to it you know like when the when the bodies are found at his barber shop like I assume he was questioned about like why she was there he's the one that called police (sighs) he was the one that was like hey call the coroner up I got a dead body in my barber shop and police are like cool we'll do that for you I played it off no problems didn't girl was just drinking he apparently called his lawyer every single time, talks to the lawyer, and after probably getting their shit straight, then he called the police. And oh yeah, they God. didn't. They didn't. I don't know. Say anything, because again, on June twenty eighth of nineteen eighty five, at twenty five oh three Kingsway, making her the third victim to be found in his barber shop. 45-year-old Patricia Josephine Andrews was found undressed on Jordan's barbershop floor. She was a mother of four. Jordan reported her death again after consulting his lawyer. This lawyer should be fucking, like, in jail for aiding and abetting in a murder, I feel. I don't know. It's really gross how this happens. I don't know. That just feels off to me. Whatever. Like, drug charges, yeah, it's different. But murder? Yeah, it's more of, like, I think, like, conspiracy charges. I'm just, like, at least take his bar license away. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Disbar this man. You know, someone will send me a lengthy email, and I'm sure I'll be humbled really quickly. I maybe don't understand why we do this, but I just don't know. I don't know how you sleep. Maybe give me your nighttime routine. (laughs) But he claims... Jordan, after talking to his lawyer, claims that he picked up Patricia Andrews for a night of drinking and fooling around. That's when he passed out after they were done doing said actions. And when he awoke, he simply found Andrews dead. Her blood alcohol level at the time was 0.79, which the autopsy performer at the time had never encountered a blood alcohol level that high he said that it was 10 times the legal driving limit 0.08 and it's the equivalent to 40 drinks or drinking 226s takes a sip away claw (laughs) i almost want to take a little break you know i didn't do dry january and i was thinking kind of the same thing yeah like i after valentine's day because i have winery plans but right same we need after Valentine's after February Valentine's 15th Day, fifteenth to January, February, March to March fifteenth. Let's do it together. I'm down. Try if, or I'd at least be down to do half a month, like until whatever. March sixth, because I have a game night planned. But let's yeah. half a month. Let's do it. If y'all want to do it with us, like, comment, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> And to help with that sobriety feeling when coroner Mary Louise Glazier did an autopsy on the death that concluded that Andrews died of unnatural and accidental causes, one of the main reasons that I think pushed her to this reason was that she had found severe degenerative changes in her heart and liver, which is associated with chronic alcohol abuse. 
When the autopsy technician, Dr. Rex Ferris, saw Patricia Andrews' incredibly high levels and would later mention them to colleagues um, whenever, you know, they meet up at conventions or whatever colleagues do, three of those colleagues would turn around and describe how they each had similar cases that happen amongst the First Nation women over the past 15 years, which, like I had said previously, it is not that common for a woman to die of, or sorry, for anyone to die of, you know, just a solely high alcohol level context. So this automatically, you know, becomes incredibly suspicious to them, but the coroners are not the police. And so the murders would simply continue. 38 year old Velma Dora Gibbons would be found dead on September 25th of 1986. She at the time had a blood alcohol level of 0.63 It was said that she had been in contact with her estranged husband just the day before she had died. She was calling to ask for a ride to their old home from Vancouver in order to give their 12-year-old son a birthday gift. Mm -mm. Her husband, or estranged husband, Ken Gibbons, had went to the Balmoral Hotel the next day where she had been living while she figured out her drinking situation and kind of her life. But when he pulled up to meet her, Velma never showed up. Ken stated that Velma had sounded quite sober over the phone and that he wouldn't have shown up. Otherwise, he said that the kids didn't like seeing her in that type of position and that he wouldn't have done that to them. So he really believed that she would have been sober and would have showed up. And so it was kind of, he just didn't know what was going on. The next time that he would hear word of his wife was when police called to inform him that she had been found dead in room 315 of the Balmore. Fuck. When she had been found, she was in just a ski jacket, a sweater, and some socks. Though she had been found in room 315, she had been living in room 712 and Ken would call police stating that it was suspicious that when her body was found that no money was with her after reading the coroner's inquiry because he stated that she would have just cashed out her welfare check. So she would have had money on her. It was really odd that she didn't. And the only liquor that was said to be found in the room was a Chinese cooking wine. And Velma Gibbons' friends told Ken that this was not something that she would drink. So it overall just seemed like a very suspicious type of situation. But regardless, Velma's death would be ruled accidental and a result of acute alcohol poisoning. Okay. All right. It continues. On November 19th of 1986, 33-year-old Veronica Norma Harry would be found after Jordan arrived at the Vancouver police station with his lawyer to report that Harry had been found, oh, sorry, that Harry was dead in a room that he had rented after the pair had went on a two-day bender. When police arrived, she would be found sitting on the floor against a small dresser in room 23 of the Clifton Hotel on Granville Street. Now, when they tested her blood alcohol level, it was seen as 0.04, which is honestly on the somewhat low end. But Veronica would be very much described as a mother of two who had simply fallen on hard times. And according to Ben Pierre, a alcohol and drug counselor in the area, 
he would state that she simply got caught up in the downtown hardcore city life. And when he thought it was suspicious that Harry had bruises and cuts all over his face, he didn't think to alert police because, as he told the Vancouver Sun, when they lead that kind of life, they get beaten up. It would take 22 years after Jordan's first known alleged murder until 1987 when he would finally make somewhat of a slip up enough to be caught. This would happen on October 12th of 1987 when 27-year-old Vanessa Lee Buckner would be found naked on the Niagara Hotel floor off West Pender. The controversy, as I've said, like has begun way, way prior. But it becomes much louder when Vanessa's death is brought up. A lot of the women that I have talked about previously are known to live along the downtown east side area in Vancouver, which is otherwise known as their skid row. A lot of these women were known to struggle with alcohol abuse. They were First Nations women. A lot of these women also did sex work. And because of this, police, in my opinion, so people don't get mad, ignored them and did not investigate to the best of their ability. And when Vanessa Buckner comes in, it becomes a little bit different because I'm not 100% sure if it is because she may have been white, as stated in some articles, because in some articles she is described as a First Nations woman. But I think really the main factor that helped was that Vanessa had a family that was willing to fight and speak on her behalf. Though Vanessa Buckner was described to potentially dabble in some sort of drugs and work in sex work from time to time, she was not known as a heavy drinker. When police first approached Vanessa's mother with the information that her daughter had passed, she vehemently denied that Vanessa ever drank and it was really suspicious that her daughter died in such a way. She would even go on to say that she had spoke to her daughter earlier that day that she had passed at 1.30 p.m. and that Vanessa seemed fine. They were talking about the baby that Vanessa had just had two weeks prior and Vanessa didn't seem sad or depressed in the slightest. When Vanessa Buckner was first found, she was actually classified as a Jane Doe. How she was found was when a quote-unquote anonymous caller or anonymous man called 911 or whatever Canada has at around 7.40 a.m. to tell them that there was a deceased woman in the hotel that they were staying at. When they found Vanessa's body, there was no sign of foul play and Police would note that there were baby clothes scattered around the floor, but they could not find any ID. And this was according to Exhibit A, which was a show that was based off of this incident, which I watched, I believe it was on Amazon. I think I've seen that. It's a good show. Is each episode different? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, a true yeah. crime show. Yeah. They, okay. they go from the uh, investigator's point of view. So it, it talks... I don't... I mean, like, they say the victim's names 
not as the victims' names, which yeah. I don't know if they're trying to hide identities. I don't know. That was kind Probs. of weird. It, like, makes me disbelieving of all the other evidence they're giving me. I don't know why. I don't like that, well, though. Oh, yeah. But it was a good show. Recommend. If you want to watch, if you want to learn more about it, it just talks about how the investigators kind of, like, figured out uh, how to charge him. Because it is rather hard to charge this guy, apparently. But... They go into detail about how the autopsy showed that there was slight bruising, um, you know, around her body and that there had been trauma signifying that she had recently given birth. And it wasn't until investigators matched her fingerprints into their system that they were able to find out her identity and who she was, which was Vanessa Lee Buckner. When the police go, like I had mentioned, the mother was straight up denying that there was no way that her daughter could have died from alcohol poisoning. There, She never drank hard liquor. I mean, she did not even drink liquor at the celebration of her son's birth. So there was just no way in the slightest that she could have died from such a cause. The mother would even go as far as giving the name of 60 people that could attest that Vanessa was not a drinker the police would reach out to these 60 people and would admit that she did not drink alcohol. It was said to any degree. And some of uh, the claims it said she maybe drank a beer or two, but she was just not someone who drank alcohol. They would even find out later on in an autopsy that Vanessa's liver lacked the fatty deposits, which are typically associated with chronic drinkers. Please get me to stop drinking alcohol faster. This is this episode maybe we gotta switch our name i don't know jk i'll never give up red one red wine but <laughs> definitely makes me want to come back a little bit i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean we'll take a little break police wouldn't begin to catch their lucky break until they began to set their eyes on the anonymous 911 caller that alerted officials to vanessa's death Though this caller was anonymous, he did fortunately stay on the phone long enough for operators to trace the 911 call to the Marble Arc Hotel. Hell yeah. When police showed up to his hotel door, Jordan would tell investigators that he picked up Vanessa from Skid Row and take her to a hotel when Vanessa would suddenly take out some pills He would try to, as Jordan says, warn Vanessa that mixing pills and liquor was a bad idea and claims that he even tried to reach out and grab them from her. But Vanessa was extremely adamant and instead took them. Again, this is what Jordan is saying, not probably what really happened. Right. It was after this that he claims they had sex And being intoxicated himself, he dozed off. When he did, he woke up. He found out that Vanessa was dead and simply left in a panic, only calling 911 afterwards when he was left to settle with his emotions and started to feel really guilty inside. When the toxicology report came back from Vanessa Buckner, her BAC levels came back at an astonishing 0.91. It was said that when officials walked in and discovered her body, Vanessa had black fluid oozing from her mouth and nose. 0.91 is 
to put it into perspective, so one of the doctors on the show Exhibit A that I watched about this case, Dr. Ferris stated that at this level, you would be way past coma anesthetic. It's absolutely physically impossible under any circumstance for someone to voluntarily drink that large of an amount. Someone had to assist you in order to get your blood alcohol that high. And she was not a woman that drank. She is not someone with a high tolerance who is doing this on the daily. So that is not a valid excuse anymore. That's not something that we can say happened. And it's probably why her blood alcohol got so high, because she probably passed out so much quicker because this girl had literally no tolerance. I mean, just when I get into the details of how it was done, it's very stomach turning, very sick, but it's just, I could only imagine as someone who has not experienced alcohol is kind of experiencing it for the first time and going through that. It's sickening. And it's easy to see why hers is so high above all. She was just clearly just so taken advantage of. But even with all of this, all of the women's names that I've said before Vanessa's, police are still skeptical. And this costs another woman her life. On November 9th of 1987, 53-year-old Edna Marie Shade otherwise known as Auntie in the downtown Eastside area, would be found deceased at the Beacon Hotel in room 7 at 9 West Hastings, where she had lived. It was said that Edna, who was a Cree Sioux Indian, was known in the area for befriending young girls who were known to work the streets as sex workers and would try to befriend them and convince them to return to school. Hmm. She would be found naked in the hotel room with a reported blood alcohol content of 0.12. No one reported her death. And so the way that Gilbert Jordan would be connected to this was that investigators were able to lift fingerprints from a broken mirror from the scene of the crime. And when they put that into their database, it matched none other than Gilbert Paul Jordan. And this quote unquote question mark, heavy question mark, is when police were said to begin surveilling him. There was one court document that I wanted to hack into, but it's like Canadian official government. And I got really scared and I didn't want the Canadian government looking out, (laughs) like looking into me. So I didn't want to do it. So. But they showed a little bit of the intro on the page. And in that intro, it said October 12th to October 26th of 1987 is when they began this surveillance. So if that is true, Edna died under Vancouver police surveillance. But in the newspaper articles said that their surveillance didn't begin until the 16th and that they weren't having meetings until, you know, just three days after Edna died. So there was nothing that they could have done about this. Hmm. Okay. Nothing that they probably could have done about the four different instances that they would later catch Jordan under 
with women. They're all connected. When yeah. no, this is after they begin surveillance because they let him get away with not one, not two, not even three, but yes, four instances where they find Jordan with a woman inebriated. They are fearing for the woman's safety. And they have to take that woman away from Jordan. I don't know why we're allowing it to get to four. Maybe a police officer explained that to me. Because I feel like after one, that should be good enough. But yeah, police would pull four women from Jordan. It's very much assumed that had these women not been pulled, they would very much end up as the next victim. Uh, The dates that this happened was November 20th of 1987 at the... Ball Morale Hotel. Their names are given. I will not say them, just their survivors for their safety. If you want to look it up, you can. I just, you know, whatever. Uh, their blood alcohol level was 0.52. The next victim was on November 21st of 1987. They were found at the Pacific Hotel. Their level was 0.43. The next was found on November 25th of 1987. They were found at the Rainbow Hotel. Their blood alcohol level was not tested or it is not known in court records. And the last instance was on November 26th. So this is happening within all of a five-day period yeah. of 1987. This person was found at the Pacific Hotel and their blood alcohol was also unknown. How it is detailed that they do these surveillances is maybe they watch Jordan and then if he ends up bringing them up to ho- a hotel room, they have an adjoining room. And so they will listen in through the adjoining room. So the last instance, I believe it was was the one at the Pacific Hotel. They are listening through the room as Jordan is with this woman. And in it, they start to hear him. Uh, they start to hear Jordan begin to offer the woman money. They start to hear him say, have a drink down the hatch, baby. Here's 20 bucks. Drink it down right. And then they, he continues to go, you know, if you're a real woman, you'd finish that drink. You know, I'll give you 50 bucks. I'll give you 70 bucks. I'll give you a hundred. And at this point, police state that he begins to start getting more and more aggressive. And then at From there, they begin to hear gagging sounds from behind the door, at which point police burst into the room and witness Gilbert Paul Jordan forcibly shoving a bottle of vodka down this woman's throat. And that is very much the presumed method for every instance that I've talked about previously. And that is how he got away with it all. And that describes the bruising on their face, on their lips, on their nose, on their neck. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yep. All right. He liked to shove vodka down their throat. And then he was said to sit there and watch and... often sexually assault them as they died. Thankfully, it would not happen this time. Police would rip Jordan off of this woman. They would get her straight into detox. She would thankfully end up okay. And Jordan, I don't know why this is what it takes, but this is what it takes for Jordan to officially be charged with the first degree murder of Vanessa Buckner. Uh, The Investigators had to use similar fact evidence in order to get him 
prosecuted, they determined or they would describe how the women's high alcohol levels along with the similar bruising that they had along with the witness evidence of Jordan doing so violently to a woman was all used in court. But even with this, they found it very hard or prosecutors thought it would be very hard to convict Jordan on first degree murder and really feared that he like, may be a mistrial or he may even be let go because of this. Because again, <laughs> you have to think that the jury is going to have somewhat of the same presumptions that these officers will. And so prosecutors were really fearing for the worst. I don't know if that's really what would have happened, but that is what was going on in their heads. And honestly, with the times, it was probably a very valid fear, uh, though Jordan could at least be connected to like 10, 11 deaths at this time. It's an insane amount. He would end up being charged with seven of them. But then at the end of this all, with the fear of everything going on, they would solely charge him with Vanessa's death and it would be dropped down to a mere manslaughter charge. They knew that they could prove that Jordan was at least criminally negligent in creating these environments. You know, he has had at least four, five, six separate instances where he has heavily provided women with alcohol. They've ended up dead. He should know, hey, I shouldn't be providing this alcohol because... And three of them were in his barber shop. salon. <laughs> and it's like, you shouldn't... You sh after two. After one. But after two... None at all. You know? And no, it's like after seven. Okay, well, you know, maybe he's criminally. So they're like, whatever. And so he stands before a judge alone on October 20th of 1988. And Justice Bach would find Jordan guilty of manslaughter due to criminal negligence. And, you know, he gets sentenced to 15 years. Uh, Jordan appeals this. It gets reduced to nine. It gets even worse when he's paroled in just six months years okay. i mean better <laughs> whoo sorry better years not the so best bad, okay but six years for murder and bad. you've been linked to 10 you're a serial killer and we're giving you six years originally 15 you got reduced somehow to six i'm yeah it gives me like the heebie-jeebies the terms under his parole, which, you know, he was let out in six years, was that he had to spend nights. He So he was able to do whatever he wanted during the day. But I believe for the next three years, he had to spend the night in jail or like some kind of halfway house. And he had to test, you know, negative for alcohol, which it's like 24 hours or 48 hours. I think it's clear from your system. Uh, he lasted about two years before he would break this curfew or this, you know, probation when in 1996, he just, I don't know, like disappeared for, I believe, two days. He would tell his parole officers, oh, uh, I had a friend going through an emotional time and I simply stayed the night. But I think, you know, it, it was the downfall. So he was released in 1997. He opens a barbershop in Abbotsford, which is about 44 miles southeast of Vancouver. He tries to change his name to Paul Pierce, which he is almost able to do because there is a loophole in the Canadian law at that time that did not require a fingerprint or criminal check in order to get a name change. But thankfully, I think the uh, government or the 
crown, whatever, heard what was going on. They were like, oh, actually, we're not going to let that happen. They closed the loophole and he wasn't able to change his name. Uh, But of course, on June 1st of 2000, he gets charged again with sexual assault, uh, negligence causing bodily harm and administering a noxious substance, which of course turns out to be alcohol. This is after he was allegedly caught with a woman that he met at the Douglas Hotel. Again, police don't care. He was released on October 19th, where the Crown stated they simply just didn't have enough proof to put him under, you know, under bars. So, they had to wait until two weeks later when on November 2nd of 2000, police would find, again, Jordan in a Port Renfrew Hotel with women and alcohol, which was against his probation. He was not allowed to be with alcohol or women. (laughs) Or in hotels. (laughs) And then in that, if it has probably in May of 2001, 2002, uh, he would be convicted and sentenced to 15 months in jail, followed by three months probation for that November charge, which of course, you know, he breaks. I'm like, it gets so confusing. This guy has so many charges. I literally am so sorry if I'm not making sense, but it's just charge after charge after charge. And I don't know why we don't just officially keep him in jail. After a two-day search, police would find Jordan on August 11th of 2004. He is 72 years old by this point in Winnipeg. After an incident occurred in the York Hotel in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, on the 9th of August. So at 72 years old... He started binge drinking with this woman named Barb Berkeley, who had been a long-term resident of the hotel at which they were staying at. And she had been known to have an alcohol substance abuse problem at the time. But when Berkeley's friend, Kathy Waddington, found her in rather bad condition at the hotel, she immediately rushed her to the hospital. And Waddington would identify Gilbert Paul Jordan as being, you know, the last person that her friend had been seen with, he and he had been drinking with her. It was sus. Not sus enough, though, because he's acquitted in 2005. And instead of... I was like, oh, shit. And instead of putting him in jail, like we should, the Crown instead issues a warning. So in February 3rd, I believe, again, the years are so weird (laughs) because this guy gets caught so many times. In 2005, the Crown puts a lookout for a 5'9", 174-pound, 73-year-old, now at this time, stating that if they see him doing any wrongdoing, such as drinking alcohol, being in the company of a female, that they need to report him. (laughs) In the words of Nick Barsaba, who is the father of Vanessa Buckner, he's a worm. He's a little life. He should be squashed just as he squashed a lot of girls' lives. Thankfully, the public notice, I guess, doesn't have to be in effect for that long because this fucker dies on July 7th of 2006. Um, Though, you know, he is dead and it's really unfortunate that it took him dying to officially have the women of Vancouver not fucking be worried about him anymore. At least he's gone. But it's, it's upsetting. I mean, alcohol abuse problem or not, these are people. They were mothers. They had family that cared about them, whether they lived in the area or not. 
they are still human beings, even if they didn't have family. Like, they should be cared about. They should be taken care of, just like you would any other case. And it's so upsetting to see this couldn't, like, so many of these women's lives could have been saved. Even fucking, I think what was most upsetting was Edna dying after Vanessa Buckner's when police were like, okay, well... We officially have, you know, this dangerous guy in our hands, and then they just let another one slip through the cracks. It's just, how many instances are you letting this happen? And at what point are we going to say, okay, you know, it's no, not okay. I, yeah, we need I to take a look agree. and I mean, do better. Unfortunately, this sounds like a little bit of negligence, and I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard with the lawyers, too. I want to be saved, but at the same time, I don't want to say people like that. I don't agree. <sighs> well, that's it. So, yeah, okay. I made it. I finished. <laughs> you did it. Um, Kristen, that story was so awful. I'm so... And I, again, I know we like to say a lot about the victims towards the end um i was thankfully able to find a news article that had a little bit of information not that much but i again just want to give a little bit of homage to the victims that were affected ivy rose aldwald 52 years old mary Lorinetta johnson 42 barbara and paul 27 mary doris johns 25 patricia thomas 40 patricia josephine andrew 45 38 year old velma dora gibbons 33 year old veronica norma harry 27 year old vanessa lee buckner and Edna Marie Shade, 53 years old, and the unknown victims and the women that also suffered from the assault by his hands. I know, like, he even married a second wife who also went through some really crazy shit. I didn't get too much into, I did get into his personal life, but not, like, super exclusively. There are a lot of podcasts that do some really great jobs with that if you want to go check them out, but... Yeah, it's just, it's truly insane, and it just, it makes me wonder how many people are out there could be affected, didn't, I don't know, hard to think about, hard to go to sleep. Anyways, now I'm going to try and go to sleep. It's hard. It's hard. Um, no, I, I think about the same thing, uh, and it's just there's a lot of cases that we have talked about that we have yet to talk about that we don't even know about mm -hmm. that we will never know true victim counts and so it's uh i i just i can't comprehend so i can't even just like scratch the surface of yeah. trying and we'll leave it at that hope y'all enjoyed we'll try and get this out in a timely fashion and we have the next episode out for you and thank you all for sticking around if you do it really does mean to the world the world to us and we appreciate your understanding during this seasonal depression time so like comment subscribe give five stars it always helps the show out thank you i love you at r-a-r-w podcast and send us an email if you have a case that you want us to talk about or you just want to talk to us, period. We're here. Hi. 
red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com and until next time y'all bye bye